Hello, everyone. This is Olga Mack, working from home, building the future of contracts. And today I have a great pleasure to talk to someone I admire a lot, someone who shares passion for contracts with me. Jeanette, welcome. Please introduce yourself. Hello. Thank you, Olga. I'm very flattered. I, uh, my name is Jeanette Knighton. I am the author of four books, including the Vested Outsourcing Manual, Getting to We, and the fourth manual, which is the Contract Professionals Playbook. I have been uh, teaching negotiation skills around contracting since 2003, and I'm an attorney by background. So I do bring that linear thinking, but I don't represent my clients in a traditional legal fashion. I work with the contract professionals on both the buy side and the sell side. I love the attorney by background. Um, I think that makes us both attorney by background. Yes, yes, yes. That is something we've shared. I I actually love that designation. Never use it. I may borrow it from you. Well, please do. (laughs) So talk to me. You, you, You were a lawyer once. Yeah. Um, and you've discovered a whole different side to be impactful. Tell me how that happened. I worked my way from litigation, which is the very ending of a really bad relationship. And I wanted to get closer and closer to developing good relationships and, and good agreements. And I realized that as a lawyer, I was always going to be uh, too downstream. So even when I stopped litigating and I stopped drafting contracts, I got agreements that were already formed and there was little that I could do to influence the agreement. I was there in the legal capacity to review the legal terms. And I eventually made the jump to teaching clients, my clients, how to negotiate agreements and decided that that was really a very impactful move that if I could work with the contract professionals, the account managers, the buyers and procurement professionals at the very beginning to talk to them about how to structure a mutual gain agreement, a performance-based agreement, an outcome-based agreement, that there would be uh, less need for the legal system to then provide some sort of recourse or remedy in the form of litigation. So that was really my hope is just give people the tools. The other thing, Olga, I don't know if you're seeing this as well, but more and more contract professionals are getting incredibly complex deals and they're not necessarily getting the training and the support that previous generations got. So I read a contract that had originally been written in 1998 It's for a utility, so the work is still being done all these years later. It's a really good agreement. I mean, it was typed, you know, so people had to scratch out a word, write the word above in pen. Everybody had to initial it and then initial the page. So it it was not done on a computer and all that sort of thing. It was a really well-structured agreement. But I don't know if people coming in to contracting today could with – literally a typewriter and a piece of paper, write a contract that was as solid as that one was in 1998. It it takes a lot of understanding between the operations and the legal implications and personalities to get it all together into an agreement that would sustain itself for that long. So I also have a huge passion to give people those tools. Um, There's so much. Um, I'm a former litigator too. So, um, 
completely relate with you that was a downstream problem. I, um, I, it, I definitely felt like I would have been much more impactful if you kind of bring me a little bit more in the beginning. Um, as somebody who also later in life, after I litigated, learned contracts and actually self-taught, I always wondered, you know, um, to what extent I could have been a better contract professional if somebody actually more systematically taught me. Um, and I had, a, I had a mentor who once said, oh, the red lines is not negotiating. And that always stuck to me. Um, but I would love to kind of understand, you know, you started with litigation and then discovered this passion for contracts, training about contracts, uh, training um, not necessarily lawyers, sometimes maybe lawyers, but mostly contract negotiators. So wanted to kind of understand the passion for contracts and then teaching the world about proper negotiation of contracts. I think for me, um, contracts really come from a place of, I'm, I'm a very linear organized thinker. And so well-constructed contracts are the written words of the agreement, but they need to be linear and organized and coherent. So a lot of when I'm mentoring people today, what I'm seeing is where something is um, inconsistent. So I, I will look at something and I'll say, well, this provision over here is not consistent with this provision over here. So for, I was working recently with risk and we were trying to determine the most likely case scenario for risk, um, the next less likely but impactful scenario for risk, and then what the catastrophic scenario for risk is. Well, that means I really have to understand how liquidated damages, corrective actions, termination for breach, acceptance, insurance, how all of those provisions become linear and cohesive. So the first type of risk event that happens, do we have enough steps to catch it? Corrective actions, rework. Would there ever be a, uh, a chance where it could be considered not rework? Is our acceptance procedures, are they robust enough so that we would catch something um, before we've accepted it? What happens if it's the next level of failure? Well, so now we, we're starting to get repetitive failures or we're getting schedule delays from the rework. So now we have to start looking at our liquidated damages. What's the cost to the customer for this sort of work? Um, is the customer contributing to the schedule delays or any of the rework? So if we're bringing in our own employees or if we've got third parties coming in. So then that's the next layer I have to look at. And then finally, the catastrophic failure would be insurance provisions and a breach of contract. And so then how are those written so that if we needed to declare a breach of contract and terminate, you know, are we paying for work we didn't accept? And then on the other hand, do we have step-in rights where we could go in and pick up the work? And then sometimes that'll trigger intellectual property rights. And so for me, I love that, that web of complexity. I can't just look at one term and, and say, well, yes, you're covered. I have to look at what are all the steps together. And I think that it makes, for me, my biggest growth as, as a, an attorney, not actually practicing as an attorney, is then trying to explain the limits of liability to the attorneys and calls and trying to explain, you know, why I don't think this number is enough. You know, do we marry it to the limits of the insurance policy, but what if, 
or do I think that the limits of liability is excessive and why? Um, because if lawyers don't understand the risk and they don't understand the scenarios in the contract, then they come up with a number and it's not a meaningful number for the contract. You can be, um, you can have too much on the one hand and it will cost the, the uh, customer because the supplier would have to get that level of insurance and they'll pass the cost through to you. But is that a cost you really want to bear or you'll be under the liability amount and then the customers left making up the difference. And so it's fascinating to me to try to explain that. I am with you. And with most definitely, what I, I definitely want to get into the substance. Uh, but before I get there, I have one question. I will see a lot of non, uh, we, have, we see a lot of professionals who are not lawyers. And I deliberately do not want to use the word non-lawyers. Uh, negotiate contract. And I've worked with many of them. Many of them are actually very sophisticated, sometimes yeah. much more than lawyers I know. Yes. Um, and um, what are your thoughts about it? Um, what is the main difference? Do you, do you, as, a, as, as a lawyer by background, uh, what do you think about it? Do you encourage it? Um, do you think it should be sort of an equal opportunity this way? Um, should the lawyers be leading this conversation? Or should it be more inclusive? Just kind of curious because, um, you know, contracts are something that an asset for the company or for the organization. Um, and, you know, this uh, issue of ownership, who owns it, really yeah. comes up a lot. So for me, it starts with the acquisition continuum. And so the acquisition, if it's a commercial transaction and you're buying commodities and you've got many different potential suppliers, and then the, the terms are dictated by the lawyers because you use a form contract. And there's very little deviation from that form contract. So either the supplier uses its form contract or the buyer does with the purchase order. So that's really driven by the lawyers because buyers in those circumstances, you know, negotiate price and delivery, but not the other terms. Those terms are typically not touched. Then when you start going to your preferred vendors, right, you still have the lawyers dominating on the terms and conditions. This is what our master agreement looks like, our master purchase agreement, our master services agreement. And then uh, buyers and account managers start carving out through either special terms or the statement of work where they start to tailor the agreement. And so that, but it's still like those terms cannot be touched. The master service terms cannot be touched and we tend to negotiate the purchase order or the statement of work. And then you move to the next level of complexity, contractual complexity and, and buyer supplier interdependence. And that's when you get into your performance-based contracts. That's really where, um, if you've got a well-trained non-lawyer function, it really does start to become more equal because a really well-trained non-lawyer function should be able to push back on quote-unquote standard terms and explain why that standard term is either not applicable or it needs to be rewritten for the circumstances and why. And they really become facilitators. So they've got to work with the technical team and make sure that they understand how the technical requirements match the legal requirements and they've got to work with the legal team to make sure that they're tailored in the appropriate way in order to drive performance. And then by the time you're at the highest level, that's not a joint venture, an outcome-based or a vested-based agreement where you've got the most amount of interdependence 
and the highest amount of complexity, then it really is a very collaborative effort between all the parties, the supplier, the uh, procurement parties, contracting and sourcing on the one side, account management and contracting on the other, and the lawyers. Because the lawyers, if they don't understand the level of interdependence, can inadvertently undermine the strength of that agreement by not supporting the provisions that are there to promote collaboration and interdependence. So I've fought with attorneys on those kinds of vested deals because they didn't want to document governance structures and procedures. And we had had four committees and four different types of work being done in a vested deal. And if you're, if you're not talking about hundreds of millions of dollars at high risk, it, that sounds ridiculous, but it was. It was high risk and hundreds of millions of dollars. So you needed the different committees to work in a very precise way. And the lawyer on the buying side was just very resistant and was unwilling to um, ha commit his client, the buying organization, to the governance structure. And that fundamentally undermines and is a, a gross misperception of the amount of interdependence between the supplier and the customer, the cooperation that's required to perform on that agreement. And so we did a workaround. We did it as an MOU. It was not um, an actual appendix to the master services agreement, but it's, um, it's a massive disappointment that lawyers are not able to function in that collaborative sense and trust the sourcing professionals and the account managing professionals um, that this level of documentation for governance is necessary in order to stabilize the relationship. And so I see a lot of situations where governance is word of mouth, it's not written down, and you just pray to God that the account team and the buying team are there, that they're not boomers at the age of 60 and are going to leave in a year or two and take all that tribal knowledge about how to govern the relationship with them, leaving a massive void because it's not documented in the, in the contract and that tribal knowledge is not documented anywhere else in the relationship. And so by the time you start getting to the non-joint venture, the most interdependent of the relationships and the most complex, the lawyers really need to learn how to listen to the other team members, be part of the team rather than driving it, and understand that they're there to solve real-world problems on the day-to-day -day level and that none of their terms, no limitations, indemnifications, none of that's going to matter if it craters because it'll be so far away from the event, reputations will be ruined, services will not be delivered, uh, business will be lost, who cares? I'm worried about in this moment, if there's a failure in the service, how does the supplier and the buying company come together in a productive way to solve that problem in an equitable fashion that's fast? And that's where governance matters and not limitations of liability and indemnification or even for that matter, insurance. Now what matters is acceptance, cure, rights to step in and do work, things like that suddenly are very important because you've got to be able to act quickly to prevent a huge failure from happening. This is probably the most comprehensive answer to my little question that I've ever received. I absolutely enjoyed it. It, it was so thorough. 
um, and the depth and breadth of your knowledge is just impressive. I, I have nothing to add. This is this is such a fantastic answer. I, I, I really enjoyed every second of it. Um, and we will talk about governance in a second because I do think that's a very critical component. In the beginning of the conversation, you talked about uh, outcome-based agreements, mutual gain agreements. Um, I'm not sure if those are terms of art um, or what do you mean by that, but maybe we can start with that and then talk about governance. I definitely want to get to governance, but I want to make sure I, we are working toward the same goal. So a mutual gain agreement is where it is um, profitable and sustainable for the buyer and the supplier. So if you're buying nuts and bolts in the millions and you've got five different suppliers you go to, the minimal amount of mutual gain would be that the buying company buys the nuts and the bolts at the cost to make the nuts and the bolts plus the overhead at the factory, shipping, all of that, and some profit so that they can continue, the supplier can continue to invest in capital expenditures, robotics, artificial intelligence, et cetera. Okay, so that's a basic mutual gain. Everybody gets enough out of it so that the process or if it's a service or the good, if it's um, a regular buy, that those are able to be sustained over time, that you're not going to so completely starve the supplier that they cannot continue to function, which has happened in aerospace and then and uh, automakers, and they've had to step in and buy their suppliers, or they're not gouging the customers to the point where they can't sell enough product to make a profit. Okay. When you get to a performance-based agreement, you are literally buying performance. You are buying a call center that is able to resolve an initial call um, within you know two and a half minutes, for example. So you answer the call on a certain number of rings, you provide the answer within a certain amount of time, the resolution is appropriate to the caller's question, and you hang up. And so you're buying performance. All of the calls at the call center for you know a level A, lowest level call, are all answered within two and a half minutes, and you start tracking them as service level agreements, you start rolling them up into key performance indicators. 80% of our calls are answered within two and a half minutes. We have high customer satisfaction, et cetera. That's a performance-based. You can have performance-based for goods as well, um, where it's the just-in-time delivery, the maintenance of the good, um, and perhaps um, warranty claims as a result, so that you have very little downtime, for example, for a huge piece of machinery within a factory. The machinery is still a good, but it's performance-based, because you're not just buying the machine, you're buying operation and maintenance, warranty, you know, extended warranty periods, et cetera. When you get to an outcome-based agreement, the customer, the buying organization is literally buying an outcome. So if we go back to our call center example, you're not just buying calls being answered within two and a half minutes. Now you're buying an upsell. So imagine a credit card company gets all those calls to, um, to uh, activate your credit card. Okay, so a lot of them are automated, but that's kind of a missed opportunity, right? So if you could determine which of your clients had maybe three different accounts, I mean, I, because of me having personal accounts and business accounts, 
in one institution, you know, when you open up my portfolio, it's like, it looks like I have a lot of money and a lot of, of accounts and credit cards and a line of credit because I bank at one credit union. So now I get my new, my new card, my new de debit card, and I have to activate it. Well, if I have to call in to activate it in an outcome-based agreement, they would activate my account, and then they would say, are you satisfied with all of your services? Do you have any questions about any of the other cards you have? Could I introduce you into consolidating? I see that you've got two different credit cards with us. And I'd say, well, no, one's a business account and one's a personal account. And they might say, well, your, your business account is not the most um, you know, up-to-date kind of benefit-oriented credit card. Could I introduce you into getting points? Or, and so you're buying the outcome of this customer service center now upselling the individual to maintain that individual as a customer of that institution and not jumping to another institution to get a better credit card deal for his or her business or for his or her personal use. And so now the outcome is the um, retention of your customer base through the customer service experience. And now that's an outcome that the buying, in this case, the financial institution, would be able to determine the reward for those kinds of calls. Now, you could get someone like me that would just be like, no, I've, you know, I've got kids, I'm working from home now, I'm running a business. No, 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 get me off the phone. I just want to, you know, activate my new debit card. Go away. However, a couple of years ago, I was upsold into a larger line of credit for my company. And it was brilliant. It, it's served me very well at times when I needed to draw down on that to make salary and then repay it, you know, six weeks later when my invoice was finally paid by my client. Because I have had times when clients have been 110 days out paying me because of some internal snafu in their organization. So that outcome of upselling me into a larger line of credit benefited me. I still remember that, and I'm thinking, that was a really effective call. And then it benefited the financial institution, because now they've got my business. And then it benefited the third-party supplier, who is the actual call center that I called into to you know, activate a credit card or something like that, right? And so I'm in this process of activating my credit card you know, in 2015 or something, and I'm upsold a potential you know, increase in my line of credit. I mean, it was a very subtle outcome that has benefited all three of us. So in a vested model the, and an outcome or a vested agreement, the user, Jeanette, benefits, the buying company, in this case, my financial institution benefits, and then the third-party supplier benefits because they're not just being paid to activate my card, they're being paid and tracked and measured on my customer experience. Very impressed with the way you kind of took the world of contract and, and, and put it in different buckets. And it, it, and it does make quite a lot of sense. Um, and uh, I guess it, make, it really helps to negotiate your contracts much more intentionally. Um, I remember when we talked a few months ago, uh, you recommended starting with a risk profile. Um, and you, you explained to me uh, that it was a critical step. Um, would love to for you to to uh, tell the audience what it is. Why do you start there, and what steps they should take? Two thoughts. First, my the risk profile thinking charts, checklists, etc., are all in 
the contract professionals playbook. So if I lose any of the listeners and they're still interested, go to the contract professional playbook because it has all this information. So to condense it verbally to answer your question, the risk profile looks at various areas where there could be a risk event that could lead to a potential loss. So if you start small, uh, nuts and bolts, and you're getting them delivered, so then the risk would be that the nuts and bolts are the wrong, not in the wrong bolt, you know, it's, it's just, it's the wrong drawing, it's the wrong size, it's the wrong material. Uh, someone used too much nickel, not enough aluminum, so it doesn't have the strength or the weight that's needed, etc. So then you look at how do you solve that risk? Wrong nut, wrong bolt. Well, you provide drawings and you provide technical specifications that says this is the percentage of nickel and aluminum, um, this is the di diameter and the dimensions. That's the only thing that can be delivered. And we're going to inspect it. We're going to have quality assurance at the factory floor, open it, look at it, maybe weigh it to try to determine if it meets the technical specifications. So there's a risk. So then you determine from that risk profile, well, what's the worst case scenario that could happen? Well, now that depends on your industry. Because if you're a printer, um, something like that may not be a catastrophic fail. And so you may choose to use the, that nut or that bolt because it'll still fasten things together for your printer. Uh, but then you would apply service credits because it's the wrong thing and you would try to correct it. But there's no catastrophic fail. If you're talking about nuts and bolts and fasteners in aerospace, and this is a true case, and your supply chain goes all the way out into Asia, and somehow, whether it's nefarious or not, the nuts and bolts that are produced in Asia are not to the material content that are in the drawings and technical specifications, but through um, sort of a gross eye examination, gross meaning gross parts, not gross is disgusting. But if you're looking, if you're, if you're getting tens of thousands or millions of them and you open up one box and you don't capture it, now they are inserted in an aeroplane. And so now the catastrophic failure is enormous. Because you either have to stop production or stop maintenance. These were maintenance bolts and fasteners and things like that. So now you can't maintain because you've got to get the right ones in that have the particular certification. And then you're starting to talk about $10,000 a day in delay charges. So your risk profile for something as simple as a nut or a bolt can be pretty significant. And then the corrective action that I coached my client to do with respect to that very situation, because obviously that had to go to the legal team, et cetera. There was not enough liability in the contract for the supplier to pay my client, who was a supplier to yet another in the supply chain for aerospace. So the whole thing was basically a poop show, right? But what we, what I, what I do, and this is my passion, is I say, okay, fine. The lawyers are going to have to figure all that out. People are going to be writing checks to other people. I'm working with the contract professionals. What do we do today? And what we did is we brought quality assurance from our organization together, and we said, okay, from now on, for these tier of suppliers, we have to spend more on quality assurance and inspection. We can no longer you know, open one box, sort of inspect it casually, close the box, and accept the entire shipment. We're going to have to be much more diligent 
along the way. We're going to have to take one sample from a bunch of different shipments, and we're going to have to literally deconstruct them to make sure that the appropriate weights and measures of the metal were there because a, a less expensive metal was substituted for a more expensive metal. But in aerospace, that's not an acceptable solution unless you go through all the design change efforts to have that design change approved by the airframe manufacturer. And so that to me is where I win. And I'm so happy as a contract professional because while the, the rest of the team, the executive team and the legal team are sorting out the implications of it, I've got a solution today that'll help prevent that sort of thing from happening again. And it's something that's doable and it will cost the customer more money because they have to have more resources. And then we have to determine, you know, do we absorb that cost as the customer from the supplier with the um, inadequate bolts? And is that just part of, the, of doing business because it's so much less than the liquidated delay damages for passing that along the supply chain? Or do we somehow then have to start incorporating increased quality assurance into the cost of our contract to the airframe air manufacturer? And so that's where the tribal knowledge is so incredibly important because somebody on the team knew how this had happened at some point in the past and had a path forward. So I understood we needed greater quality assurance. Somebody else understood other parts of it and we could come together as a team. And rather than making that a contractual obligation, we made it a customer obligation internally, didn't pass it on to the supply chain because the, the liability was so enormous it, it had to stop and there's no amount of flow down that's going to prevent that from happening when your supply chain is that elongated. You can stop working with the supplier, but you're going to have to find another supplier and then hope that that supplier is not getting its parts from the same fourth party supplier in Asia that your other supplier was. So, and that could take sometimes months, six, nine, 12 months to change suppliers. So we had to have something immediate and quality control was our immediate fix um, as a result of that contractual problem. Very real, very pragmatic approach and, and the way to think in a very structured way about risk profile and how, how it differs depending on what you do and, and, and where you're going. Um, that, you know, and you keep, you keep mentioning the tribal knowledge, um, which is very critical. And there is connection between this tribal knowledge and policies and governance. Um, I would like for you to explain what it is, how you think of it, and then what steps an organization can take to you know, preserve this very important tribal knowledge. So one of my clients that I'm supporting is higher as um, in the acquisition process, we've got bidders for um, a very complex and very risky service. And uh, so I gave a mini lecture on governance and I started asking questions. And so there is no recorded governance, even though there is a contract management function. And the lead project manager for the service would be uh, the ultimate decision maker for a certain tier of problems within um, that relationship. Where it becomes tribal knowledge is I've got maybe 10 people on the phone and uh, one is a retired professional who's now in a consulting role such as myself 
and some of the other folks, and they're like, well, can just imagine him going back in his chair like this. Well, you know, we had this issue down at the site, you know, a couple, you know, years ago, and and Steve, you know, was it Bob that was the pro, you know, and they're kind of talking back and forth, and I think what we did is before we issued the notice for corrective action, we brought everybody in, and and what did we do? And then Steve's like, we did this big root cause analysis, corrective action plan, whiteboarding session for a day. We didn't let them leave the room until we solved it. And so there's this story. It's literally a story. Like, you know, please give me a scotch and a cigar story. It's just a story of how they did it. And, you know, and at that time, they didn't have to issue the cure notice and the corrective action period because they were just able to get everybody into a room and they whiteboarded it and, and they got it solved. That's governance. Make no mistake about it. That's governance. When who, whether it's the contract manager or the project lead on a complex service sees something going off the side, delays, improper work, rework, at an early enough stage that that person calls the team together and says, it's now time to solve this problem before we all get ourselves in over our head. That's governance. What I advocate for after working with Kate Vitasic on the Vested Outsourcing series of books is that when you start buying very significant performance and definitely when you're buying an outcome, Governance has to be documented as an attachment to the contract, you know, Appendix K, whatever you want to call it, right? It has to be um, in a formula where we know who the team members are for both the supply side and the buy side, who's got authority to solve what level of problem within what time frame, how then that team escalates it to another team with a higher level of authority to be able to solve it within a very short period of time. How, uh, when there are changes in the scope of work that are gonna be, um, that may come up as a result of this governance process, are they gonna be change orders that are allowable because of circumstances that are outside of our control or were they foreseeable circumstances that the supplier should have anticipated and therefore their scope change order will be denied but they're still um, under the contract obligated to perform those services and and it has to be structured because you can't allow a problem that could start causing you a $10,000 a day delay to go 60 or 65 days before it's solved. In our prior conversation, we talked about pre the, the risk profile, then the governance, and then only after you have clarity on those two, uh, you recommended using legal tools such as indemnities, and you recommended to be very intentional about it. Um, and for a lawyer and me, it was you know, a little bit maybe of a bummer, um, but also quite liberating because not all you know, problems have to be legally solved. Um, Talk to me about the intentionality of using legal tools. Uh, most of my listeners are pretty familiar with legal tools. We know them quite well. Many of us have been practicing for decades uh, and, and know indemnities, limits of liabilities, reps and warranties back in and out. Uh, but the intentionality, we'd love to kind of hear how you think about using those tools intentionally uh, to go back to the goals of the value and performance in your contract. Absolutely. And so where I'm really pleased to work very 
um, coherently with the legal team for some of my clients is there are just ramifications and remedies we don't understand. So it, it, we never pretend that we do, right? So this or, the one organization that I'm thinking of, we really know how to swim in our own swim lanes. So I can create the risk profile and we've got credit risk on the phone and they're doing their own profile because uh, if the work isn't performed, it could potentially bankrupt the supplier, et cetera. So we've got that risk profile. We've got the scope of work profile, the technical profile for risk, et cetera. Then what we do is we present it to legal. And then that's when we internally start explaining the risk profile to the legal team and saying, okay, you know, here, here's our concern. If this company, and, and because it's the time of COVID and if there's another stop work, et cetera, et cetera, we, there's just a lot of potential. If this work isn't done, here's what it's gonna cost us per day and delays. Um, those damages are going to exceed the coverage of insurance and they're going to, ex you know, potentially based on the credit worthiness scores could potentially bankrupt the supplier. Worst, worst, worst case scenario. So then that's when they start brainstorming and they say, well, you know, this is a subsidiary. Said, that's true. It is. The global headquarters is in Europe somewhere. Well, so then let's get a parent guarantee. Um, you know, this work cannot easily transfer. Once we select a vendor, we are selecting that supplier for, uh, I think it's a seven-year period, and the cost to transition is prohibitive in the work. And we can step in a little bit, but we don't have the skill set to do the work. We could step in and keep it from, uh, you know, cratering, but we're, but that's, that's not doing the work, right? That's just preserving it so it doesn't crater. You know, that was a really creative solution that we wouldn't have necessarily have thought of had we not brought the legal team into the conversation. How do you solve our problem? Because there's no amount of tinkering with the limitations of liability that's going to solve that kind of catastrophic event. But there's enough of a probability with COVID that there could be things over the course of seven years that we cannot anticipate that could cause a catastrophic failure. So then we go back and we talked about the letter of credit and what that was going to look like and what the levels of the letter of credit were going to um, be set at and how much our company was going to pay for that letter of credit, et cetera. And so that's where the legal team is still incredibly uh, helpful in a really profound way. My, my concern always is, is that we present the problem to legal in a way that doesn't lock them into the box, make this about limitations of liability, where we can't negotiate limitations of liability, we're too far apart. No, take it a step back. What's the underlying concern? This potential for a catastrophic failure in the time of COVID with a subsidiary that could potentially not have the financial means to, to provide the recourse that we're looking for. Now what? And then the legal team gets to use what, what they're really good at and devise other kinds of uh, tools to shore up the contract so that we're protected. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes quite a lot of sense. I uh, I'm always get a little uh, mesmerized by the way you talk about contracts. It's it's so thorough and intentional. Um, there are very few people in the world who who speak about contracts in such a um, in such a thorough uh, way. So I really appreciate it. Um, you mentioned COVID. Yes. 
Um, so let's talk about COVID and, and, you know, how has it interchanged the world of contracts? So I like to date stamp because I think it's going to change quite a bit. So this is September of 2020. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so COVID. So, you know, the initial COVID was uh, force majeure, right? Uh, we got to declare suppliers and customers alike. And uh, my force majeure day was March 12th. My flip-a-day calendar, is, I was at my office the other day, was still set to March 12th because that's the day that the school system had an automated call that said, go pick up your child from school. School is now closed. Sort of like, I mean, I was, I was on the call with my accountant. I'm like, why is the school calling me? I got to go get her? It's 2 in the afternoon. What's going on? It was really, it was really crazy, right? But now it's September, and it's not crazy, but it's profoundly impacted. And industries are profoundly impacted, and supply chains are profoundly impacted. And it's no longer legally probably considered a force majeure event. I'm going to leave it vague because of different jurisdictions and international potential international listeners and things like that. Since it's not a force majeure event anymore, now we got to go back to basics and figure out what is the new risk profile look like for the future. We don't understand consumption. We don't understand usage. We don't understand production if you're in goods because all of that is now shifted. In terms of services, some services we don't need anymore. There will be some very significant conversations in major urban areas whether we need high-rises with companies taking up 24 floors of people. So that's a, that's a potential consumption issue that ripples through the economy. But it's also a contract. It's a lease. And if you're going to downsize your lease, if you're going to reorganize your workspace, that's also facilities management. We have all these open plans and, and shared cubbies where you go make a telephone call. Well, in the time of COVID, you're not going to have someone take their mask off, make a telephone call in a little tiny four-by-four four cubby for privacy, then go back into an open area, and then have somebody five minutes later go into that same cubby without proper ventilation, take his or her mask off to make a private call, right? So all of this has got to be rethought. So there's some really profound implications that are going to trickle out. And we don't know what they are because we don't even know if we're done with COVID because in the United States, we don't have a vaccine yet. So we're not really sure where the, the virus is going to take the country. That level of uncertainty, then from a contract professional's perspective, is really a change management effort or a modification of your contract effort. And so how are we modifying our contracts? How are we tracking them? Are we doing it sort of loosely and verbally to, to address the issue in the moment? And then we're going to go back quarterly at our quarterly meeting and document all the changes and then have them formally accepted by both parties and attached to the contract? Or can we only do it through contract change orders? And what does that process look like? And how much needs to be changed in the contract? And how much of it is just going to be mutual verbal agreements at the time of? And, and that's really what I, some of my mentoring clients, what I'm really seeing them struggle with is, you know, does, you know, based on my company's policy, is this a change order? You know, do I do it now? Is this just an agreement? Because what if it goes back in two months to the way it was? 
And there's just so much uncertainty. So say you're starting out, or you're not starting out, you're a seasoned contract professional, but um, you are noticing that the world of contracts is changing and the world is changing. Why, why? Contract should be an exception. Uh, contract is changing with the world. Um, what should you prepare for and how? How should you prepare for that in a more interesting way? This is a fascinating question about um, artificial intelligence and automation. And, and so will negotiations be done completely through computer programs, like uh, computerized uh, chess games done by IBM's Watson, for example? Um, we're not there yet for performance and outcome-based agreements. We might be there to buy thousands of parts over a five-year agreement, um, be able to automate a lot of those purchases, and have we, we have a very few amount of parameters, price, delivery, things, you know, we, we know what, how to uh, estimate the cost of living increases to get a 2% year-over-year increase in some areas or a year-over-year 2% -year decrease for cost efficiencies somewhere else. So there's a few parameters. When you start getting into performance and outcome-based, there are too many parameters right now that, are, that we can program them into Watson and get a decent result. I just don't know anyone who's doing it, but I do know we're starting to flirt with automated negotiations. So what do you have to prepare for is very complex contracts with a lot of variables. And, you know, if you're comfortable doing sort of a routinized contract function, buying function, I foresee that being automated out, meaning fewer people, more automation in the years to come. I do not see very complex relationships, the kinds that I'm involved in in mentoring people, being automated in the next five years at all. And by 2025, 75% of the workforce in the United States will be from the millennial generation, those born before 1998. And so as a result, we're gonna have a fairly young shift you know, right now, a lot of the people I work for are older than I am. I'm the Gen X, so they're boomers. And when they're fully retired, it's gonna, the workforce is going to skip over the Gen X and move to the millennial generation, which means you will ha if you're a millennial, you will have very complex contracts to negotiate and to manage. Now, in my world, that's, like, super freaking exciting. Like, <laughs> let's go, this is awesome, you know, because it takes brain power and collaboration and talking to figure it all out and to make it work. And when it works, these really magical things can happen. Um, the downside is, is that if you're not getting consistent training on these performance types of agreements and you're just getting routinized negotiation skills, you may feel underprepared when the time comes to negotiate because you don't know how to use a risk register and you don't know how to talk with the technical team about what you're seeing about the risk and how um, to negotiate provisions. And I've been very successful in educating technical teams who want to take a very laissez-faire attitude towards something. It's like, oh, that's just a leverage point. You know, what do we care if the supplier is asking for that? And I'm, and I'm able to communicate in a way that makes this one woman, Michelle, said, I didn't even think of it that way, Jeanette. You're right. I'm, I'm not comfortable anymore with their, the supplier's position. I understand now you know, what the sequence of events could be. That's going to be your role, is, is educating and advocating in these really complex agreements. Um, 
Where do you go to learn? You know, you need to go back to our professional organizations, places like the International Association for Outsourcing Professionals, um, the IACCM, which now is the World Commercial Commerce, Commerce? Uh, WCC now. They just changed their name within the last 30 days. They've got um, education. University of Tennessee has the vested training from Kate Fantastic. Um, you'll have to go, you know, I've got training programs that companies hire me to do, but we really will need to see a tremendous increase in training for complexity as we let go of the things that can be automated and allow them to be automated and shift people from simpler to far more complex transactions. It is fair to say there's still a need for people. Oh, yeah. In increasingly um, automated world. Yes, because the, the deals that need people, you really need people and people skills. And I foresee a, a world where contract professionals are master facilitators, where they are able to get people in a room with varying degrees of expertise on the issue at hand and being able to come to a consensus in order to move the relationship forward. That's really going to be a very big part of a contract professional's job you know, five, ten years from now and less about uh, you know, the paper processing parts of it all. I think that that'll be automated out. But the disagreements, that's not going to be done by a computer. I, thoroughly, as you can tell, I, I, I've listened quite a lot and said very few things. That's usually a sign that I thoroughly enjoyed every word. Um, as always, I learned so much from you. Thank you so much. Uh, I, it's a real pleasure. A huge learning opportunity for me. And uh, I hope we can do it again. Yes, we can. Absolutely, Olga. Thank you very much for having me. This has been a joy. Thank you so much.